It's always good to be back uh, home. This is uh, where I started, and I rejoice to see people I haven't seen in a long time. I do know a lot of you. I don't recognize you anymore, but uh, there are a lot that I do know. I was just telling Susan the other day, why is it that everybody else has changed over the years and we still stay the same? Uh, well, she thought I was uh, self-deceived. Um, Let's go to the Word of God now. Would you please stand as we read His Word? Our text is Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25. This is what God says. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word. You may be seated. A little boy came home with a very bad report card one day. As his dad was looking over the failing grades, uh, the little boy asked, Dad, what do you think is responsible for this bad report card? Heredity or the environment? Well, in many ways, the church today has brought home a bad report card. It's not living up to its potential. It's not as spiritual as it should be. It doesn't glorify God the way it should. It's not transforming society. It's not meeting the real needs that people have. It's not as loving and uh, inclusive as it should be. And everywhere the cry goes up, what's responsible for this bad report card the church has brought home. What is, what is responsible for this sad state of affairs? Wrong question. Did you notice that when the little boy asked that question, he was trying to disown any personal responsibility for his bad report card? And that's what we do when we ask, what is responsible for the church's bad report card? You see, the church's bad report card is our bad report card. We shouldn't be asking what is responsible for the church's bad report card. We should be asking who is responsible. And the truth of the matter is that to the extent that the church is not living up to its potential, it's because we, the individual members of the church, have let her down. You see, the church is a body made up of many different members, all working together in many different ways for the benefit of the whole. But in many cases, the church has become spastic in some instances, and paralyzed in others. There are some members who think that they can function independently from the rest of the body. 
These are the spastic members. And then there are other members of the body who don't think they have to function at all. They're a dead weight on the body. These are the paralyzed members of the body. So it's unprofitable for us to stand back and ask what is responsible for the church's bad report card. The question is not what, it's who. It's you and me. We have let the church down. And as Christians, as members of this body of Christ, we have two alternatives. We can either continue to be a part of the problem, or we can choose to be a part of the solution. You see, every Christian has the responsibility to help other Christians grow in Christ and in the Christian life. If the church has not lived up to its potential, it's not because the church itself as an institution has failed, but it's because we as the individual members of the body have not fulfilled our responsibility within the body of Christ. There's a real danger in the church in this country where we stress individualism above mutual responsibility. In the United States, we prefer the Lone Ranger model of Christianity, where everyone does as he pleases without any regard to how it affects others in the body of Christ over the three musketeers model of Christianity, all for one and one for all, where we acknowledge and fulfill our responsibilities to other members in the body of Christ. I remember I saw an episode of the Red Fox show one time, some of you may uh, remember that, but uh, in this particular episode, one of uh, Red Fox's employees, he was the owner of a store, was trying to get him to take responsibility for a little homeless child who was camped out behind the store, and Red Fox didn't want any part of that. And finally, uh, inspired by the righteousness of her cause, the employer, the employee drew herself up and she quoted, No man is an island, John Dunn, 1623. To which Red Fox retorted, I am what I am, and that's all that I am, Popeye, 1947. <laughs> well, there are altogether too many Popeye Christians in the church today. People who don't care about others and they're not interested in changing either. But the Bible knows nothing of this solitary and individualistic type of religion. If we belong to Christ, then we belong to the body of Christ. We belong to one another and God has given us certain mutual responsibilities that we have to one another. Because every Christian has the responsibility to help other Christians grow in Christ and the Christian life. So 
How can we do that? How can we help other Christians grow in Christ and the Christian life? Our text this morning says that we can help other Christians grow in Christ and the Christian life by fulfilling three responsibilities that we as Christians have to one another within the body. The first way that we can help other Christians grow in Christ and the Christian life is by fulfilling our responsibility to persevere. Look at verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. This is not only a call to persevere, it's also a call to witness. The two are bound together inextricably. I've had people tell me, I can't witness. And I say, oh yes, you can. It's not a matter of whether you can or not. It's a matter of what kind of witness you're going to be and what you witness to. You see, when we persevere in the faith, we witness that the Christian life is worth living and that God is faithful. But if we don't persevere in the faith, we witness that the Christian life is not worth living and that God is not faithful. I remember back in the early 80s when I had started Northside Presbyterian Church over in Sherwood, uh, J. Oswald Sanders was uh, visiting. He was a, a noted godly preacher and writer from uh, New Zealand. He was visiting here in the United States, and I had the opportunity to have lunch with him along with about four other uh, pastors. After lunch, we asked him if he would share something from the Word of God with us, and we, of course, thought he was going to share some uh, tips on ministry with us, but instead, and mind you, he was 82 years old at the time, instead he opened up to Galatians 5.22, and for the next hour, he shared with us his continuing struggle to grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. I was amazed. Here was a man that not only I, but anybody who knew him considered to be a godly man, and yet he was continuing to pursue Christ and the Christian life all the way to the end of his life. That was tremendously encouraging to me. That witnessed to me that the Christian life is worth living and that God is faithful. Now contrast that with a number of some of the older members that we had in our church at that time. I don't know why, but it seemed like a number of them at some point in their lives with regard to growing in Christ and the Christian life had, had drawn a line and said, we will go no further. That was tremendously discouraging to me. That witnessed to me that the Christian life really isn't worth living and that God is not faithful. Living a long life can be a blessing if we, if we live for Christ. But 
living a long life can also be dangerous in the sense that the longer we live, the more we're going to be tempted to drop out of the faith. The more tempted we are to quit pursuing Christ and the Christian life. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. It uh, is a, a series of letters written by an older demon to a younger demon, instructing on, him on how he can best tempt his charge. And in one of the letters, the older demon writes this uh, to the younger demon. He says, the enemy, meaning God, the enemy has guarded him from you through the first great wave of temptations. But if only he can be kept alive, you have time itself for your ally. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. You see, it is so hard for these creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which we create in their lives, and the inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it, all this provides admirable opportunities of wearing a soul out by attrition. I'm one of those older Christians now, and I know this is true. Old age takes a toll on you. And the temptation to quit pursuing Christ and the Christian life is always there. It's so hard for these creatures to persevere. But we must persevere for the next generation because it is to them that we are witnessing whether the Christian life is worth living and whether God is faithful. Remember, it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt that invented retirement, not God. We need to persevere in the faith until the end of life. No one is too old, as long as you're alive, to fulfill this responsibility that we have to other Christians to witness that the Christian life is worth living and that God is faithful. So the first way we can help other Christians grow in Christ and the Christian life is by persevering in the faith. The second way that we can help other Christians grow in Christ in the Christian life is by fulfilling our responsibility to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now, the word that is used in my translation to spur is a very strong word. In some of your translations, it may say stimulate or provoke. But it's a, it's a very strong word. Think of, of spurring a horse. 
And here we are told that we are to premeditatedly provoke one another to love and good deeds. When we're not actually provoking one another to love and good deeds, we're to consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Can you imagine what the church would look like? Can you imagine what kind of a, a report card the church would have if all of the members of the church were doing this, provoking and considering how to provoke one another to love and good deeds? Now, some of you have been provoking people for years. And so this will come as good news to you. Uh, you just didn't know it was a biblical responsibility uh, that you had, but not so fast, because notice what it says. It says, provoke one another to love and good deeds. Now, when we provoke people to love and good deeds, very often that will create some anger. But anger is not the goal. Love and good deeds are. And by the way, when someone provokes us, to love and good deeds, we need to keep in mind what it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, that love is not provoked. Because, again, this is very strong language that the writer is using here. Provoking one another to love and good deeds may result in people feeling anger, but again, that's not the goal. The goal is love and good deeds. Let me give you a couple examples of how Members of the body can provoke one another to love and good deeds. Alice Moore was a member of this church in the early 80s. I met her when I first came as uh, an associate uh, pastor, and then she became a part of our core group that started Northside Presbyterian Church in Sherwood. Alice was one of the sweetest people I have ever met. She was married to a handsome Air Force major. She had two beautiful kids. And one day she announced that she was leaving them and going off with another man. Rick Canada and I, of course, went over to talk with her and uh, to counsel her that she shouldn't be doing this, to remember uh, the vows that she had taken as a Christian, to to think about how this was going to affect her husband and her children and the rest of the body. But after a while, Alice wouldn't even talk to us anymore, and then she left town. And Rick and I thought, that's that. You know, it didn't, it didn't do any good. But a year later, Alice Moore was back with her husband and her children. And the reason she was back with her husband and her children is because someone from this congregation provoked Alice to love and good deeds. It was Mary Ann Miller. And I think you who knew her knew she had a gift for provoking people to love and good deeds. And so the tone of this letter will not surprise you. This is what she wrote to Alice. She says, Dear Alice, your Christmas card and note came as quite a shock to me as I was unaware you were separated from Dick. By this time, uh, the Moors were meeting with our core group over at uh, Northside. So 
she wasn't here at Covenant anymore, and that's why Mary Ann was not aware of this situation. She says, please allow me to ask you some per pertinent questions in response to your remarks. I do so in fear of hurting you, but also in love for you and your children and Dick, and for our Lord Jesus. I deeply desire that his name not be blasphemed, ridiculed, or scorned by the heathens. When we take the name Christian, then we must be extremely careful to show the fruit of obedience, or we're taking his name in vain. Jesus identifies his own as he that hath my commandments and obeys them, is the one that loves me. Alice, what is your scriptural ground for separation and for breaking your vows of marriage you made before men and God? If you have no biblical grounds, then you have no excuse. Where in scripture did you acquire the idea that the purpose of your marriage or your life was your happiness? God did not put you here to be comfortable, but to glorify him by being conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That takes suffering, rejection, humiliation, and pain, all of which he endured for you, Alice, for your salvation, justification, and sanctification, which is a daily process of refining, purifying, and being made holy. Sounds like Marianne, doesn't it? But she wrote that in love. Alice told me how mad it made her when she got this letter. But it was this letter that brought her back to her husband and her children. And she's the one that gave me the letter and asked me to use it if ever I thought it might do someone else some good. And I have shared that letter a number of times with different people and different congregations because it's such a powerful testimony to what provoking one another to love and good deeds can do in the body of Christ. Another example of provoking someone to love and good deeds is someone who came into my office one day, a member of our church, and he asked me if I knew that so-and-so was sick, and I said, yes, I knew they were sick, and he said, have you been by uh, to pray with this person? And I said, no, I had not yet had time uh, to do that. And then he said to me, well, I think we need to go and pray for that person right now. That was provoking. And you know how I know that was provoking? Because I got provoked. I thought, I have my day planned, and besides that, I'm the one with a master of divinity. I'm a highly trained minister, and I will decide who gets prayed for and when. That's what I thought. But I went with this gentleman, and we prayed for this man, and it's exactly what he needed. It's exactly what I needed to be doing but I wouldn't have if I hadn't been provoked to love and good deeds. Now, I don't like being provoked any more than anybody else does, but again, can you imagine what the church would look like if all of the members of the body were obeying this command 
to consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. That's what the early church did. The early church was known not only for what it professed to believe, but for its very practical expressions of love and its good deeds that glorified the Father who is in heaven. So the second way that we can help other Christians grow in Christ and the Christian life is by fulfilling our responsibility to provoke one another to love and good deeds. And then the third way that we can help other Christians grow in Christ and the Christian life is by pulling together. Uh, That is, pulling together in the sense of coming together as Christians. Verse 25, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now the text doesn't tell us exactly why some of these people had given up meeting with other Christians, but I'm sure they had excuses back then just like people do today. Uh, We're too busy. I know some churches now that are offering 30-minute services for these people who are busy, but that doesn't seem to be helping the situation either because the truth of the matter is when people, particularly when Christians say they're too busy to meet with other Christians, what they're saying is that they just don't think this is important enough for them to take the time to do. It's not important enough for them to fulfill their mutual responsibilities uh, to other uh, Christians. I remember one uh, young mother that told me uh, one time that the reason that they didn't go to church is because it was just such a hassle to get up on Sundays and have to dress everybody. And I thought, yeah, the other six days of the week, you, you know, your husband, your kids, they go out naked, but on Sunday, you have to get dressed. Why does God make it so hard? And then some people say, well, they don't get anything out of it. Well, there could be any number of reasons for that, but notice what the text says. We're to come together, why? Not because of what we get out of it, but we're to come together to encourage one another. And by the way, this doesn't just refer to services. Because as you all know, in a service, in a worship service like this, there's very little opportunity to encourage one another. That usually happens in closer types of gatherings, as when you have people into your home or in small groups. Listen to what James Dobson said about his church experience. He said, I'm convinced Americans are desperate for a sense of community. Eventually, many of these lonely people search for fellowship in a church setting, but what happens when they arrive at the sanctuary? Often they encounter busy, harassed people who are focused on their own needs. Now, certainly, Christian people have been trained to be friendly to newcomers, but their response is superficial. superficial. Sure glad you came today will not suffice for following up with phone calls and invitations to dinner and genuine lasting friendships. That's why visitors often attend services for a while, but eventually conclude we're not needed here and just fade away. I wish I could convince my fellow Christians that the most productive form of outreach is right under our noses. Passing out tracts and knocking on doors have their place in spreading the gospel, 
But nothing links families to Christ like linking them to the established community of faith. That's why Sunday is an exhausting day for Shirley and me. We work hard to reach those whom we feel need our involvement. Sometimes it's a couple standing alone in a Sunday school class. Perhaps they've attended the church for five years or more. But the social awkwardness is evident on their faces. Even though we attend a friendly church, I occasionally become irritated by the lack of dedicated workers in this critical task of caring for people. It is, in my opinion, the most important family ministry a church can implement. One of the things that I've noticed over the years since I went into the ministry is how little hospitality is being practiced today. How infrequently people ask people into their homes or are asked into other people's homes. Again, Sunday morning meeting for worship is a good thing to do. We shouldn't neglect that. But the truth of the matter is, and I know you know this by experience, that you can see the same person for five, ten years in church, say, hi, how are you, how was your week, how have you been? They respond, fine, how about you? You think it's going to rain this afternoon? And that's all the deeper it goes. That really doesn't do anything in terms of encouraging other people in the Christian life. And that is what we are to do. We're not supposed to neglect meeting together for the purpose of encouraging one another in the things of God. You know, I've never met anyone who has absented themselves from the body of Christ for any length of time that doesn't grow cold in their Christian walk. You know, if you take an ember out of a fire, what happens to that little ember by itself? It goes cold. It dies out. And the same thing is true of our experience apart from the body of Christ. Remember the banana. When it left the bunch, it got peeled. That's what happens when we absent ourselves because even though the purpose of gathering together is to encourage others, what happens when we do that is that we, in turn, are encouraged in the things of God. So the third thing that we can do to help other Christians grow in Christ in the Christian life is to pull together in the sense of coming together frequently and in different settings. The church is a body with many different members all working together in many different ways for the benefit of the whole. We mustn't suppose that we can function independently from the rest of the body. We mustn't suppose that we don't need to function at all. We need to remember that the Lone Ranger is not our model of Christianity where everybody does as they please without any regard to how it affects others. Our model is the three musketeers. All for one and one for all. Where we acknowledge and we fulfill our mutual responsibility to help other Christians grow and Christ and the Christian life. Let's bow our heads in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've saved us, and we thank you for Jesus Christ. But Father, help us to recognize that this is not just between you and us. Help us to see the body of Christ as the bride of Christ. Father, give us a love for the body of Christ that he himself has, that he would lay himself down for it. Father, it's so easy, and particularly as we get older, to give up on the church. But Father, you will never give up on your holy bride. And we pray that we would have the same appreciation and love for it that Jesus did. And we ask these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.